0: Good morning. I am so glad you're here today. I'm excited to continue our study of Daniel. The title of the message today is Breeding in Babylon. Don't worry, you'll get it soon enough. Before we jump in, let's read our passage from Daniel 5, verses 1 through 16. King Belshazzar held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine in their presence. Under the influence of the wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring in the gold and silver vessels that his predecessor Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines could drink from them. So they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles, wives, and concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised their gods made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. At that moment, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and began writing on the plaster of the king's palace wall next to the lampstand. As the king watched the hand that was writing, his face turned pale. And his thoughts so terrified him that he soiled himself, and his knees knocked together. The king shouted to bring in the mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this inscription and gives me its interpretation will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around his neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom." So all the king's wise men came in, but none could read the inscription or make its interpretation known to him. Then King Belshazzar became even more terrified, his face turned pale, and his nobles were bewildered. Because of the outcry of the king and his nobles, the queen came to the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't let your thoughts terrify you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has a spirit of the holy gods in him. In the days of your predecessor, he was found to have insight, intelligence, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, mediums, Chaldeans, and diviners. Your own predecessor, the king, did this because Daniel, the one king, the one king named Belteshazzar was found to have an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and intelligence, and the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems. Therefore, summon Daniel, and he will give the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought before the king. The king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the Judean exiles that my predecessor, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard that you have a spirit of the gods in you, and that insight, intelligence, and extraordinary wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men and mediums were brought before me to read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not give its interpretation. However, I have heard about you that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Therefore, if you can read this inscription and give me its interpretation... You will be clothed in purple, have a gold chain around your neck, and have the third highest position in the kingdom. Let's pray. God, we praise you for this opportunity to gather this morning in homes, in small groups, with people that we love with brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank you for this passage of scripture that we get to learn from today. We pray that it would inform us and transform us. We pray that through hearing the word of God and through discussing the word of God, that we would be changed by the word of God. We thank you for what you're doing in our church, in our community, in our country, and in our world. And we trust you today. We gather to worship you, and I pray that we would truly worship this morning. And it's in Christ's holy name, That we pray. Amen. Well, in 2008, a housing bubble burst, causing an economic recession almost no one saw coming. Investopedia points out that Michael Burry recognized the U.S. housing market was an asset bubble inflated by high-risk loans. In 2005, he created a credit default swap which allowed him to short the housing market. In layman's terms, he bet against the housing market. Eventually, some others joined Bury, but the 2008 collapse is a great example of the writing on the wall. See, the writing was on the wall, but nobody could read it, except Bury and maybe a few others. We've probably all heard the phrase, the writing on the wall, There are many songs with that title and many others with that lyric, and most of them are about, what do you think? Romantic relationships. The phrase itself is metaphorical and is meant to convey the idea that there are clear signs something will fail. It originates from Daniel 5, where the writing wasn't metaphorical. And as we begin to read chapter 5, we notice a big, sudden change. We've been studying the first four chapters of Daniel and have become familiar with King Nebuchadnezzar. And very abruptly, we are told that some guy named Belshazzar is king of Babylon. Have you ever had that experience where someone's telling you a story and then it seems like they make a big jump all of a sudden and leave out a bunch of details and you're like, wait, how did you get there? That's kind of the way it feels when we start reading Daniel 5. And the history buffs might be tempted to bang their heads on the desk, but we must remember that Scripture is not a history book the way we typically think of history books. And it's certainly not a book about the Babylonians. Rather, it is historical. It is a truly historical book with history, but its goal is to provide God's holy history. It's telling the story of God and his people. Still, we have other historical resources to help us fill in the gaps if that piques your interest. I'll give you a a real brief overview of what has happened. Uh, Dale Davis helpfully gathered that Nebuchadnezzar died after reigning 43 years. His son reigned for a year or two and was assassinated by his brother-in-law who then reigned for four years and was succeeded by his son. Well, within a month, that guy was killed and someone named Nabonidus became king. And Nabonidus reigned alongside his son, Belshazzar. And at this particular moment, the empire of Babylon has been conquered, except for the heavily heavily fortified city of Babylon itself where Belshazzar is. But there's a guy named Darius who's waiting with his army just outside the walls of Babylon for the right time to make his move. And so that's the situation. It's one of those last stand moments, right? And what is Belshazzar doing? We'll go back to verse 1. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. He's throwing a party and getting drunk. You might be thinking, why would he do that? Well, we don't have a definitive answer. Some say it might have been an effort to boost morale and show confidence and strength. Some say it it was a regularly scheduled feast that Belshazzar just kept like business as usual. Uh, Rodney Stortz even threw out the possibility that Belshazzar was just like, hey, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Nevertheless, the writer of Daniel doesn't seem interested in the details about exactly why it's happening, but rather wants to paint a picture for us that this arrogant, prideful king is getting drunk while destruction waits right outside his door. Not only that, but he takes it even further. And profanes the vessels taken from the temple of God when Babylon conquered Israel. Vessels that were meant for specific uses in worship of the Lord. So in this first section, uh, verses 1-4, through we see that sin breeds sin. You should have an outline of the sermon for taking notes. And this was the first blank to fill in. Sin breeds sin. That's what's happening here. Belshazzar has too much stuff, too many wives, and too much power, which breeds arrogance and pride, which breeds throwing a party when your enemies wait outside, which breeds drunkenness, which breeds using the temple utensils. Do you see the snowball of sin? It's easy for us to scoff at Belshazzar. But I think we need to pause and consider our own, lives, our own lives too. Has this ever been me? Has this ever been you? Impending doom is clear in our life, but instead of confessing, repenting, and dealing with our sin, we try to ignore it and sin more. My marriage is on the rocks. What am I gonna do? I'm gonna drink away the pain. Look at pornography. Flirt with someone else. Sin is hurting my life, so what am I going to do? I'm going to sin more. Right? Like, oh, I gambled away our rent. What now? Well, i got to go win it back. Right? You know, I, oh, I shouldn't have looked at that image on my phone. What should I do now? Well, I, I already did it, so might as well do it some more. You see this mentality we get into? It's like, oh, I committed that sin I was determined not to do again. So what now? Well, now I'm going to eat my guilt away. Okay, well, now I feel more guilty for eating so much. So now what? I'm going to dive into my depression and skip work. And even worse, I'll skip my time with the Lord in Scripture and prayer. I'll skip church. I'll skip my small group. I'll reject the help others are offering me in my walk with Christ and battle with sin. You see, what Belshazzar is caught up in isn't that different than what we get caught up in. It's the deceitfulness of sin. It's the natural pull of our sinful natures. He's caught up in arrogance and pride just like we get caught up in it. The writing was already on the wall for Belshazzar just not as explicitly as it was about to be. Verses 5-7. through Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly, to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. You might tell that I'm um, actually reading from a different translation than when we read at the beginning. But now the writing was literally on the wall. And Belshazzar recognized that something was terribly wrong. And where did he turn? To the occult, magicians, mediums. This is the third time in Daniel we see a king do this. Hey, destruction is at your doorstep, Belshazzar. What are you going to do? Well, I'm going to throw a party, get drunk, and have sex. Okay? Now the one true God has shown up to give you a message. What are you going to do? I'm going to call on Satan's help. (laughs) Right? This This is where we see that ignorance breeds contempt. You may have heard the phrase familiarity breeds contempt, which is meant to communicate the idea that the longer you know someone, the more likely you will discover negative things about them. We can all testify to that. The phrase makes sense when you're becoming familiar with someone contemptible, which we all are. But it doesn't work that way with God because there's nothing negative to discover. With God, familiarity breeds love and obedience. With God, ignorance breeds contempt. Which is why Belshazzar had no respect for God and didn't turn to him. Again, it's easy to scoff. You know, oh, what a foolish king. But might we be more like Belshazzar than we care to admit? Things aren't looking good for us, and we turn to drink, sex, whether physical or mental, pills, television, laziness, gluttony, all kinds of things that only serve to worsen the problems. And then sometimes we are fortunate enough to get a warning from God, which can come through our own reading of Scripture, a sermon, a book. A personal warning from a friend? And what are we tempted to do? We are tempted not to turn toward God, but rather to turn to Satan, just in different ways. Maybe not mediums and magicians, but we seek out false teachers who will tell us what we want to hear so that we can continue in our sin. We turn to blaming others for our sins and playing the victim. We turn to divisiveness, hatred, and bitterness. We turn on the very ones trying to help us, which is what Belshazzar is doing to God. See, ignorance of God breeds contempt of God because in our ignorance of Him, we make false assumptions about Him. Belshazzar assumed God was weak because Babylon had conquered Israel. Belshazzar didn't have a relationship with the true God, and ignorance fueled his contempt. It's the same way with us. If I didn't have a relationship with Christ, I would assume he didn't care when life gets hard. I would assume he wasn't powerful enough to transform me. I would assume he didn't have answers for my life. I think we can all testify to this. The less we know God, the more likely we are to rebel against him. The more I have come to know God, his word, his spirit, and his people the less likely I've become to sin. That's because God is perfect and there is nothing negative to discover in Him. So the more I know Him, the more I love Him. The more I love Him, the more I obey Him. Unfortunately, Belshazzar's ignorance turned him the wrong direction. Verses 8 and 9. Then all the king's wise men came in But they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. Just as always happens when we turn away from the Lord, Belshazzar came up empty. That's because misinformation breeds disorientation. There's no true knowledge, no true wisdom, no lasting power in these other sources. False teachers are empty. Sin is empty. Satan's schemes are empty. They provide nothing of substance or eternal value. To summarize what an unknown pastor once said, they promise like God, but pay like the devil. When we turn to the wrong sources, false teachers, unhealthy churches, secular psychology, politics, magazines, television, the list could go on, we become disoriented, which makes us afraid. This is happening to so many people right now. I mean, look around. People are confused and scared. And when that happens, they often either end up believing something false or believing nothing at all, So many people have discovered the church or cult or belief system they held to was false and harmful, and they leave it, but often not for the true gospel. Instead, they don't know what to think and either turn to another false gospel or abandon their pursuit of God and truth altogether. In this case, God wasn't about to let it end there. That's the thing about God. When everything else comes up empty, he provides answers. He provided a woman to point Belshazzar back to the Lord where he could find answers. And then Belshazzar listened and summoned Daniel. And here's what happened there. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. This part of the story ends with Daniel, who is like in his 80s at this point. He's, He's not the young man we were introduced to at the beginning. He's an old man now, being brought before the king and promised some great stuff to read a few words on a wall. Belshazzar is offering to elevate him to the highest rank he could possibly give him for reading a few words on a wall. That's how desperate Belshazzar is. And this is where we see... That desperation breeds motivation. He recognizes how important this message is. Now, before we get ahead of ourselves, that doesn't mean the king is ready to let the message transform his life. Next week, we'll see that education doesn't equal transformation. But nonetheless, he did recognize that it was of utmost importance to interpret this message. And it was in his desperation that he was finally willing to go to God for answers. And I have found that to be true in so many cases in life. I'll share one case in point. The Gospel Herald interviewed a man named Victor Torres. And I'm going to read some uh, pieces of that interview. Victor Torres was just 12 years old the first time he stabbed a man. At the age of 14, he was heavily addicted to heroin. By the time he was 18, he was one of New York City's most feared gang leaders and had been incarcerated three times. Are you seeing that sin breeds sin? Well, in the 1960s, Torres found himself immersed in a dark world after moving from Puerto Rico to Brooklyn as a child. The environment was pretty heavy, he recalled. I had to fight my way in and out of school every single day. Things were pretty rough, and my life started to go downward real fast because of the neighborhood where I was growing up. Enslaved by the power of gangs, a hunger to make fast money, and an addiction to heroin... Torres expected to die on the streets, just like the majority of his friends. About that time, my mother found Christ, Torres revealed. She had an encounter with God and brought God into our home. Right before then, she was in a dark place. She felt the bulk of the burden of what was happening to her son. You see, desperation, breeds motivation Torres's mother prayed for her son tirelessly holding on to the belief that God would rescue him from his addiction Sometimes he said I would walk into the home at 3 a.m. and the only person that would be up would be the voice of my mother praying from a small closet I used to get mad at her for that Ooh Ignorance breeds contempt I would scream at her, but she was determined that God was going to change my life. Eventually, Torres was convinced to seek help at a faith based rehabilitation center started by David Wilkerson, founder of Teen Challenge. I was so desperate in my early 20s, Torres recalled, of why he decided to enter rehab. But my mother didn't tell me the clinic had anything to do with Christianity. She knew I wanted nothing to do with religion. While at the Christian home, Torres was forced to give up heroin. We had to quit drugs cold turkey. No substitute, no medication, he said. The only thing they gave me was prayer and the Bible. By day three, the young man found himself experiencing severe withdrawals from drugs. Desperate, he fell on his knees, crying out, to God for deliverance. That's a part of a story of a man who is now working wholeheartedly for the kingdom of God. All of us probably have loved ones who we want to see repent and follow Christ, but here's a question for us. Are they desperate? Because if not, it's not likely they will change their course. It's not likely they will listen to us share the truth with them. You see, we have an enemy who wants to keep us comfortably on the road to destruction. But we need to pray for desperation in the lost. Desperation in this world. So what's the solution to all this breeding in Babylon? Well, our first problem was sin breeds sin. And the solution is to confess and repent quickly. There's no way to just stop sinning. A life following Christ is a life of continuous death to self. So we can't just stop sinning, but we can stop the snowball sin tries to create in our life. We do that It starts with confession, both to God and to brothers and or sisters in Christ. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Confession has real spiritual power. It loosens sin's grip on us and paves the way for repentance. But we need to confess and repent quick. The longer we wait, the more it snowballs and the harder it gets. If you don't, and if you don't feel like you have an avenue for confession, that's what our growth groups and our discipleship groups are for. The second problem was ignorance breeds contempt. Contempt. And the solution is familiarity with the true God. And we do this through a relationship with Jesus Christ, which we begin when we confess our sins, trust in what Christ did on the cross as the Savior of our lives, dying in our place and conquering the grave three days later through his resurrection, giving us the opportunity to repent and follow him as the Lord of our life. We must be known by Christ. And notice I didn't say that we must know Christ. And I chose those words carefully for a reason. And and that's not to say that it's wrong to say that we should know Christ, but let me explain. Think of a celebrity or a historical figure that you know all about, but have never met. Okay, call out some names in your groups. All right, and so if you met them, you might be like, oh, I know you so well. I've read all your books, watched all your movies, listened to all your songs. And they would look at you and say, "Uh, who are you? Well, Jesus spoke of that scenario in Matthew seven twenty one through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, the question isn't so much, do you know Jesus? Rather, it's, does Jesus know you? When I say become familiar with the true God, I don't mean learn more about the Bible. I mean being known by Christ through a relationship. And in that relationship, familiarity breeds love and obedience. Our third problem was misinformation breeds disorientation. And the solution is education. And this is when I do mean learn more about the Bible, right? It won't do you any good to know Scripture if you don't have a relationship with Jesus. But if you have the relationship, you need to know God's word so that you can love Christ the way he has called you to. And that knowledge will protect you from being swept away by every different teaching. Hebrews 13.9 says, Don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings. And our last problem was desperation breeds Motivation. Now notice there's a line through problem. That's because I don't think this is really a problem. I think it's an opportunity. And so you can cross out problem and write opportunity. And the solution is to pray for, look for, and live desperation. Pray for those who don't know Christ to become desperate for him. And we must keep our eyes open for those who are. And now we should know something valuable. We are all desperate for him. That's the thing. You see, many don't turn to God until their external circumstances become desperate. But Those known by Christ know that from the day we were born, we were spiritually desperate for Christ. That's what's so beautiful about knowing Him. It humbles you. And you realize just how desperate you are, even if you've got everything together on the outside. But we'll talk more about that next week. So don't hold on to your sin. Confess it. Turn away from it, or it will tighten its grip on you. And abide in Christ and become more and more familiar with him but make sure that you're not just learning about a stranger be known by Christ through a genuine saving relationship let familiarity with God breed love and obedience learn God's word it gives life it has answers it's powerful and transforming and it will protect you from lies And finally, pray for desperation, look for desperation, and live a life that reflects being desperate for Christ. Don't show the world a picture of someone who has it all together and picks themselves up by their bootstraps. Show the world a picture of someone who knows that there is nothing inside of you capable of saving yourself. We are desperate for Jesus' transforming love and power, and it is only through Him that we can do anything valuable. Let's pray. God, I I I just I just beg that we would be listening to the message that's coming through your word. Oh, we pray that we would recognize how desperate we are for you. And we pray that our our friends, our family, the lost, our community, our world would be desperate for you. We pray that the the current events that are happening right now all around us would cause people to recognize that everything that they put their hope in, that's temporary, it's worthless it will not sustain them in eternity. And we pray that they would recognize how badly they need Christ. And we pray that when they look at us, they don't see someone who works so hard to get themselves together and save themselves, but they would see someone who just fell on their knees before our Savior and recognized how deep and how dark we really are and asked for forgiveness. We pray that the world would see in us people who have something amazing and that they would want it. God, help us to use this time, this moment in this world to make your glory magnified to make Jesus known. And I hope that everyone watching, everyone listening, would be known by Christ. That none of us would face you one day thinking that we knew you just because we knew so much about you, but hearing, depart from me, I never knew you. We pray that if there's anyone watching this, listening to this right now, who thinks to themselves, I don't know if Christ knows me, that they would not leave without talking that through with you and with a brother or sister in Christ. We pray all of these things in our Savior's precious and holy name. Amen. Thank you all. I'll see you next week.